it's uh, lovely to be with you. I'm actually very relaxed if you want to ask me funny questions. Um, <laughs> nothing, I have nothing interesting to say about my jumpers, but nothing could compare um, to the insanity of the questions that I get asked when I'm doing campus talks. There's a tradition on campus that before the speaker is allowed to give his talk, he has asked a series of insane questions such as, if you were a kitchen utensil, what type of utensil would you be? I think I went for a toasted sandwich maker. Seems like a good idea at the time, but rarely used. Um, <laughs> but the worst one was ever, um, was in Queens, and, and the girl asked me, if you were a potato, what type of potato would you be? Now, what she meant was if I was a potato dish, so, you know, you curly fries or mashed, I think I would have gone for potato croquette, you know, interesting on the outside, but on the inside, essentially bland. But she left out the word dish. She just said, what type of potato would you be? So my brain crashed. I, I thought, Royal Jersey, Maris Piper. And I went for new cumber potatoes. And of course, the, the girl just looked at me as if I was a lunatic. So any questions you ask will be more sane than that. So it's, it is lovely to be with you. And over these next two weeks, we're going to be thinking about the challenges that we face as Christian churches. This week, we'll think about it from the perspective of the outside in. And then next week, we'll consider the core challenges that we face, looking at it from the inside. Now, I guess you probably think, I'm going to approach this subject as depicted on the screen. So a simplistic way of looking at this is to see a united local church being targeted by a whole set of threatening uh, threats from wider culture. Now, there's some truth uh, in that picture. Uh, we'll see in a few moments that it's a little bit naive, but there are some truths uh, that I do want to, to look at at that simplistic level. Some years ago, new legislation came into Northern Ireland, uh, which required all churches, including yours, I guess, to submit their trustees to the um, Charities Commission. And the new laws required nearly all of us to rewrite our trustees. Um, uh, in my own church, the old trustees were over 70 years old, and there was paragraph after paragraph of procedures to deal with false teaching in the church, the internal affairs of governance. But there was only one mention of the state in the whole document, and that was about ground rent. Um, it focused almost entirely uh, on the inside. But our new trust deed is the complete opposite. It rarely mentions the internal life of the church. It's focused almost entirely on our commitments uh, to the state. Ah, brilliant. So that little story illustrates how state control is starting to encroach upon our freedom to worship and to witness. The government's draconian laws enacted throughout the pandemic caused our churches to close for a while. And it seems to me that direction of travel uh, is set for the next few decades. We will probably lose gift aid status unless we comply with fashionable values. Our freedom to call on any, everyone everywhere to repent will come under pressure. The so-called conversion therapy ban is an obvious attack on the Christian gospel. No right-minded person has ever supported the wicked practices so often cited by the LGBT community. Existing legislation prohibits the use of electric shock treatment and, or beatings to try and change sexual predispositions. The real aim of this proposed legislation is to ban the gospel preachers called to repent. So some of us may quite possibly end up in prison. Having said that, I personally am beginning to sense a little shift in public opinion. It's possible that the vaulting ambition of the transgender community will cause public opinion to swing back in favour of freedom of speech. The lesson of history is that Christian persecution is real, but it's also rare. If you look over the last 2,000 years, there have been terrible moments of persecution. 
But those times were like spikes in an otherwise flat line. The real challenge, I suggest, is not outright persecution. It's marginalization. Now, what do I mean by that? We should expect to be pushed to the fringes of society. It will be increasingly rare for Christians to serve in senior positions in the civil service or in business. Your grandchildren may find professions like teaching or medicine no longer open to them. They will grow up within a climate of contempt, within a culture that regards Christianity as not quite safe. Christians, not really the sort of people who should be allowed into polite society. Now, the challenges I've been talking about so far all take the form of an overt attack on our freedoms. They come at us like a big sword, if you like, okay? But other challenges are more like poison that has been infiltrated into our soup. Worldly values like consumerism are wreaking havoc in churches in the West today. A couple of years ago, I was driving home from Dublin. And it was late at night, and I remembered that I had no milk at home. So I called into the Sainsbury store at Sprucefield, and to my intense annoyance, I discovered they had no semi-skimmed milk. <laughs> this outrage so offended me that from that moment on, I began to do my weekly shop at Tesco's. <laughs> I had had a bad customer experience, so I transferred my allegiance to another service provider. Now, we can all smile at that sort of childish, entitled behavior, but I can think of dozens of cases where Christians have moved from one church to a new one because they had a bad customer experience. The worldly value called consumerism has infected the Christian community to such an extent that we walk into a church the way we walk into Sainsbury's. We measure its effectiveness by how it meets our needs. And the end result is we have this vast shifting mass of disenfranchised evangelicals who move around various churches in search of an ideal experience. And so the whole idea of a spiritual home, of a spiritual family, gets lost. Now, Everything we've thought about thus far is true and valid, but it's a little bit naive. So to go deeper, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Revelation. We can pick out some truths from our Lord's letters to the seven churches. Now, you can see the location of these churches on the map. You're looking at a bit of modern Turkey. There's Smyrna on the coast of the Aegean, then we head up north to Pergamum, and then follow the trade route east through Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then we look back westward again, to Ephesus. Now chapters 2 two and 3 of Revelation are packed full of truth, of course, but I want to take a helicopter view of the seven churches so that we can discern the complexities of the challenges we face today. We're going to start with Smyrna. Let's read from Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I know your afflictions and your poverty, says the risen Christ, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So this poor little church in Smyrna was undergoing outright persecution. And there was worse to follow. Now this is Satan's first tactic against the church. Outright attack. I love the Lord Jesus' opening words to Smyrna. I know, he says. Nigel mentioned this prayer that some of you are going through dark times. Well, it is such a comfort to hear those words when we suffer. Perhaps you're here tonight carrying some heavy burden. Well, the risen Christ speaks into your ear now and says, I know. So Smyrna was suffering persecution. Let's move north now to Pergamum. In verses 13 and 14, Christ says, 
to Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed idols, and committed sexual immorality. So we learn that Pergamum has just come out of a period of persecution. Okay? They're no longer under that direct form of attack. But the poisonous ideas from culture have now started to seep into the church, causing some of its members to walk away from sexual morality. Now, it's only some in the church. Did you notice that? A small group of them in an otherwise faithful church. The roads from Pergamum to Laodicea were a major trading route in the ancient world. But that's not incidental to our study. Ideas, especially bad ideas, tend to flow along the same lines as trade flows. Merchants would bring new ideas about life to the cities that they traded in. I mean, today, just look at all the ideas conceived in Hollywood or uh, the west coast of the U.S. and how they have percolated across the Atlantic to us here in Northern Ireland. Now, the map on the screen uh, is a little complicated, so I've created a simpler version. A career as a geography teacher awaits me. (laughs) So as we move east towards Thyatira, we come closer to the source of those ideas. Let's read verses 19 through 23. This is to the church at Thyatira. The risen Christ says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. So Thyatira is commended for being a busy church. It did lots of things. On the surface, it looked to be a role model fellowship. But a serious leader had arisen who was leading more and more members of the church into sexual immorality. She was a defiant woman. Um, unrepentant in her beliefs. And inevitably, the people who compromised with her teaching destroyed the next generation's faith. I think that's what's meant by striking her children dead. When we arrive in Sardis, moving further east, things are even worse. Chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord says, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And in verse 4, he says, yet you have a few people in Sardis. Who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So now we can see just how far the rot has spread. In Pergamum, there were just some people in the church who had compromised, but here in Sardis, the church is almost dead. There are just a few who remain faithful. Now then we come to the last two churches in the east, and they could not be more different. In verse 8, the Lord says to the little church at Philadelphia, I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. If you read through that letter, there isn't a single criticism of Philadelphia. You get the sense of this small, vulnerable, but weak little church. But in complete contrast, Laodicea is an apostate church. It receives the Lord's fiercest criticism. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
Now, I'm grateful to my brother Danny, well, for many things, but for pointing out in this case the possibility that Philadelphia is the faithful remnant rescued by the Lord from an apostate church. If you look carefully at the warnings given to Sardis, the Lord says in verse 3 that he will come as a thief in the night. So these last two churches in the east represent the end game, if you like. The trajectory of compromise with the world reaches a point where the Lord has to lift a faithful remnant out of an apostate institution. I suppose the Reformation of the 16th century is a good example of that principle. And we may see it happen again within the Anglican church in the next few years. So that leaves us with Ephesus. If you like, on the map, we have to look back right round and start all over again. Because I think these letters to the seven churches explain how Christ builds his church. Ephesus seems to have survived the persecution and the false teachings of the Nicolaitans. So we might reasonably expect it to get a glowing commendation. And yet we encounter a church which faces the grave prospect of having its lampstand removed. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. The Lord says, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, you may disagree with me here, and feel free to do that, but I take the criticism to mean that the Ephesian church had become unloving, not to Christ, but to each other and to those around them. Just think of the story we've told so far as we've moved around this circle. Once a church survives compromise and comes out of an apostate system, there's a real danger that it becomes hard. Doctrinal rectitude is a good thing, but it can produce a sectarian spirit which circles the wagon around a theological system, and religious elitism can form within a church like that, and it ends up hard and unloving. I have to say in all tenderness that my own tradition has fallen into that trap. I come from a brethren background. I'm enormously grateful for my, my religious heritage. The values of the original movement seem to me to be biblical and wholesome, but like the Ephesian church, far too many assemblies became hard. Now, all that difficult work in Revelation 2 and 3 allows us to create a more realistic framework of a local church. You can see it on the screen now. There are potentially four camps within any church fellowship. The faithful, the unloving, the compromisers, and the sleepers. A church like Smyrna or Philadelphia would only, of course, have the faithful circle. For Pergamum and Thyatira, the green compromiser bubble starts to get bigger and bigger. Sardis would have a lot of sleepers, because the Lord tells them to wake. Church members are there are effectively spiritually dead. And, of course, Laodicea would be composed entirely of compromisers and sleepers. But Ephesus would have a small faithful circle and a large group of unloving members. Now, I'm quite sure that this fellowship is like Smyrna and Philadelphia. Thank God for your faithful work and witness. But these seven letters are given to us for our instruction. So let's use this model to see how each theoretical camp within a local church will react to the challenges we face today. We'll start with the unloving, with the hard men. These people are genuine believers, but they react to the collapse of cultural Christianity in one of two ways. They either become monks or they become political activists. In the Middle Ages, 
Uh, society collapsed with the fall of the Roman Empire, and so many spiritually-minded men uh, retreated into monasteries. They pottered around their herb gardens, maintained their spiritual disciplines within the walls of their safe monastery. Now, I'm actually being a bit unfair to the medieval monks. Many of them were fine missionaries, but I'm using the idea of uh, the monastery as a, as a visual metaphor. We all know of churches who behave like a citadel, don't we? They're a closed community that pulls up the drawbridge and awaits the return of Christ. The occasional gospel tract may be hurled over the parapets, but that's as far as they get to cultural engagement. The unloving, of course, can react in a different way. Not as monks this time, but as political activists. Just think of the rise of Christian nationalism in the United States. That is going to tear evangelicalism apart in America. Christians who are hard men conceive of their role as defending a Christian country, so they use political muscle. Their voice becomes indistinguishable from the voice of right-wing humanists like Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro or Michael Knowles. In the US, they tend to vote for Donald Trump. And the problem with both the monk and the political activist is that neither approaches the problem with a shepherd heart. Uh, Glenn Scrivener, some of you will know, once described evangelism as pastoring non-Christians. I quite like that. We should see those around us in society as sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. That's how the Lord Jesus saw them. And we should certainly have a shepherd's heart for young believers who are under enormous pressure to compromise with the world around them. Far too many hard Christians want to take out compromisers with a sniper's rifle. Young people today are emotionally fragile. They are acutely sensitive to words that can wound them. In fact, many of them listen more to the tone of a speaker than to his arguments. So make sure you never give the impression that you are hard men. A Christian community should be marked by graciousness, love, and affection. Now, it's a deadly serious point. I mean, think about the mess those churches of like Thyatira got into. And yet, to which of the churches does the Lord threaten to remove its lampstand? Ephesus. The church that was doctrinally pure, but unloving. Let's now think about the compromisers group, and I'm going to take an example here as a case study to illustrate how people in this group can unwittingly imbibe worldly thinking. My case study relates to the role of women in the church. I can almost hear the sharp intake of breath. The technical word for the doctrine we're going to think about is called complementarity. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it really means two things. According to the doctrine of complementarity, men and women have equal status and dignity in the eyes of God. However, in the formal affairs of the church, God has ordained what we might call gender distinctiveness. Men have some roles in the church, women have different ones, and the two genders complement each other as they model creatorial order. Now, I don't need to tell you that complementarity is under significant pressure from wider culture. Now, here's the thing. Christians have disagreed over these issues for decades. But I've chosen this case study because of a major change that has taken place in the past two years. And the change is this. Today, arguments against complementarity are being framed by the concept of abuse. This is a new and, to my mind, highly dangerous development. You see, in wider culture, straight white men are seen as an oppressive force in society. 
the so-called white heteropatriarchy, is accused of oppressing minority groups like women, people of color, and the LGBT community. Men, we are told, use social norms and even language to abuse their power over women. Now, we must be really careful here. In the Christian community, there have, of course, been horrific examples of men abusing power over women. Just think of the appalling behavior of the late Ravi Zacharias. He stands guilty of sexual abuse of women and of using his institutional power to cover up his misdeeds. So it's vital that I underscore the sheer wickedness of all men who sexually abuse women in church life. It's a real problem, and I'm not for a moment trying to underplay its seriousness. In fact, the point I'm about to make is designed to maximize the seriousness of sexual abuse in the church. That's because my concern is with those who take the concept of abuse and then widen it to such a degree that it starts to lose its force. Now, let me illustrate how. Uh, When a concept is stretched too far, it neutralizes the offense of the original concept. A woman called Diane Langberg has written a book called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Now, some of you may know Langberg is held up by many as the voice of wisdom in these matters. She has acted as a consultant for major Christian institutions and denominations. And I'm going to quote you a paragraph from her book. She says this. I have stood in Auschwitz beside those ovens where children and other vulnerable people were thrown. And why were they thrown there? For the sake of purity. For us to be pure, we must get rid of certain kinds of humans. We must silence them, silence them, eliminate them, because they are a threat to our purity and our prosperity. A staggering deception. Yet, she asks, is that not what we do when we cast truth-telling victims of abuse from our midst and label them as disruptive? We throw them in the ovens of shame. No, Diane Landsberg, it's not the same. The Holocaust was a uniquely evil and monstrous moment in history. And it is a disgraceful sleight of hand to equate the mishandling of a conflict in church with the Holocaust. The problem here is that the concept of abuse has been so widened that it has become meaningless. A principal in a US theology college has just recently been suspended for abuse. A number of women have accused him of abusing his power. And I took the time to read the transcripts of the case. And the evidence I discovered was that he had cold eyes and that he once ate ate an apple noisily in their presence. Now, here's my point. It's entirely possible that that guy was an unpleasant man. He was rude, perhaps, and abrupt. Perhaps he didn't treat his co-workers with respect. He might even have been a bit of a bully. I'm not minimizing any of those sins. Please don't misunderstand me. But surely they cannot be placed in the same category as a man who rapes one of his students. And those who try to cover up their colleagues' abrupt behavior cannot be placed in the same category as those men who flung thousands of little children into the gas ovens of Auschwitz. The problem here is that this cultural move towards what we might call narcissistic victimhood has infected the church. The church needs to remember that not all discomfort is trauma and not all conflict is abuse. And that brings me back to the doctrine of complementarity. Feminists, feminist theologians, simply dismiss 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 as irrelevant to the lived experience of women who have been abused by predatory leaders in churches. The doctrine of inerrancy, which of course we use when discussing these matters, 
we are told, was invented in the 1890s to protect men so that we need to start in these conversations with the lived experience of abuse survivors. Now, the issue is so sensitive that I've raised here. I'm going to repeat what I said at the start about the sheer wickedness of men who sexually abuse women in church life. My point is that those who widen the concept of abuse are doing a terrible disservice to those poor women who are genuine victims of sexual predators. So imagine a young woman who is treated rudely by a grumpy elder. Well, she has every right to be upset. Elders should be invariably gentle and kind. But she does not have the right to place herself in the same category as a survivor of rape or holocaust. That is narcissistic victimhood. The overall point of that case study was that some believers, especially young believers, can unwittingly absorb the narratives from wider culture and then apply them within the church. As we shall see next week, they will inadvertently destroy the church by undermining the legitimacy of authority within the fellowship. My final theoretical group within the church are the sleepers. <laughs> yes. Uh, <clears throat> you'll recall the Lord saying to the church of Sardis, wake up. But I, I've actually run out of time. I think we should move, uh, Nigel, straight to the questions. I, I'll just say a couple of brief things. This group can be described as believers who are drifting away. So the importance of church membership just goes lower and lower with every passing year. As the book of Hebrews says, do not give up meeting together. First rule of commitment, turn up. But these sleepers lose interest in the things of God, overcome by the worries and responsibilities of their daily lives. Now, young believers in this category are vulnerable uh, to the attraction of what we might call a sort of soupy spirituality, a designer label approach to faith, where someone takes the bits of a religion that they quite like, quietly discards the bits they don't like, and assembles a worldview of their own. I, I'm going to stop now to take some questions. But anyway, the big takeaway take point from tonight is that the evil one uses poison more often than he uses the sword. In other words, he infects churches with ideas rather than using outright persecution. Sometimes he does use that, but more usually he causes the false narratives in surrounding culture to infiltrate into the church. Our job is to remain faithful, not to be hard men, not to be compromisers, and not to drift into unconsciousness. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.